Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, my name is John Kennedy. Welcome to this special episode where we'll be bringing you some of the highlights of the many inspiring conversations we've had over the past season on Tape Notes with the brilliant artists and producers that we've been lucky enough to talk to about the alchemy of creating music together. If you're relatively new to the show, it's a great opportunity to introduce yourself to episodes and artists you haven't heard yet, and for the dedicated among you, a gentle trip down memory lane with some of our favourite moments so far. In this episode, you'll hear from Friendly Fires and Mark Ralph, These New Puritans, Elbow, Ezra Collective, Mystery Jets and Matt Twaits, DJ Shadow, and we'll start at the beginning of the season with Muramasa. For our first episode of season four, we were at home in Iguana Studios, joined by the talented and insightful Alex Crossan, better known as Muramasa, to talk about his latest album, RYC. We hear the building blocks of Feels Like We're Dancing, advice on when to stop working on a track, a demo of Teenage Headache Dreams, which went on to feature Ellie of Wolf Alice, and a word about working with other stars. But to start, a clip from his freestyle studio session with the inimitable Slow Tie on the track that turned into Deal With It. Wake up feeling complacent. I step outside and see the rain falling on my fucking toe cap. I was steel as the shoes were, but kicking in front doors. Waiting, waiting for an applause of the local knobhead. Nobby's nuts don't crack enough for me, son. I was waiting, waiting patiently in vain like my name's Bob. Bob, you soggy SpongeBob twat, soaking up everything you never had. It's mad how life. So he's just coming up with that off the top of his head or had he written anything this, down or? no the whole that, thing is improvised that's so good and like the fact that we had like 20 minutes and we managed to hone it down into this tight three minute thing and also the whole idea of like deal with it I think he mentions it once in this whole sort of 20 minutes there's a lot of interesting things about this song because it's kind of built around this guitar riff which is just three notes essentially You can hear the bleed from the pickup, which again is like a tactile in the room thing. So yeah, all the guitars on the album are just straight DI'd, apart from the acoustic. And then obviously the roads. And I tried to play all the keys parts on a, on a MIDI keyboard to give them a bit more of a human feel. And then the Freddie Mercury reverse piano. <laughs> Another one bites the dust. So when do you know it's finished? That's a really good question. When do you know it's finished? It really depends on the song. But for me, a big indicator is, do I get bored at some point? listening to it and if so why is it that specific part is it the amount of time that it takes to get to that part like on some of those earlier demos you can hear at the start that I've got this kind of mood setting there's kind of a bit of world building before the song comes in but then at the same time on the finished record 
it just jumps straight in and that's a lot more immediate um and for me a song is done when you've made all those really difficult calls so that can take forever but i feel like yeah if you're not bored at any point during a song it's probably done yeah <laughs> that's a good test maybe yeah. <laughs> if you're making pop music it's very different for different types of music i want to be free again not a very good vocal remember how we used to be Do you know sounds good to me it's all right at home and dream stare at each other like TV so there's no harmonium on this but it was written on the harmonium yeah there ended up being some which I'll show you later mm. in the project Come back to me um, I just like that that fifth guitar line it kind of reminds me of Joy Division and Sonic Youth and things like that I don't know how I just feel down Teenage headache dreams That was me being Ellie <laughs> Seems like the good times are What would become Ellie? Yeah Nothing's really over anymore So you can kind of hear that essentially the whole song is, is already there But then I just got lost here And there's two more minutes of music and no vocals And it kind of goes into this What you might recognise as Ellie's verse essentially mm. had the pleasure of working with some of the maddest musicians like Nile Rodgers. He does a really interesting thing which is he always starts the song with the hook which I just thought was fascinating. Like just get to it, get to, mm. the, get to the meat. Damon Albarn as well taught me something that isn't exactly to do with music but he had invited me to his studio to talk about gorillas and kind of me working on the gorillas project and that sort of started a conversation about him featuring on my album. And I was peppering him with questions about the Gorillaz album, like, what's it about? What are you looking for? What exactly do you want me to do? And um, as I was sort of hitting him with all these questions, he sort of leaned over and he put his hand on my leg and he went, we are going to see each other again. Like, don't don't worry. And that was just really like, oh, yeah, this isn't some, like, summit. We are going to communicate again. And, like, I think that just taught me to treat everybody just as people, you know. I love that. I love the fact that Alex Cross and such a young artist, Muramasa, starting out, getting that kind of reassurance from the likes of Damon Albarn and realising, hang on a minute, I'm in this for the long haul, I'm here to stay. And he certainly is. What an amazing artist. And if you haven't heard the full episode, do go back and listen to the whole thing. Next up, we have Ed and Jack from Friendly Fires and producer Mark Ralph recorded on two separate occasions. First, Iguana Studios, then Mark's own studio, Club Ralph in West London, where he and the band worked together. We start with the demo of Love Like Waves, then talk drum recording, followed by Jack's 909 live take that formed the backbeat to Can't Wait Forever. And finally, a word on references in the studio. So this is the first demo recorded yeah, at yeah. your parents' house. Eh? The first, yeah, the first like vocal jams, I guess. Like. Strap in because it's about seven minutes long. Yeah.
And what what are you playing here then? No, it, what instrument? Uh, it's the Arp Odyssey doing the lead line, and then it's like a really cheesy rompler piano sound. I mean, we we used Omnisphere, which is like a VST fake synth basically, but it was kind of emulating the like the JD800 that Mark actually bought after he finished the record. Yeah, so. sometimes sometimes you try these old synths out by proxy, you kind of find the new recreation of them and get so into them that you want to actually have the real thing. Yeah. So I went straight onto eBay after we'd done one of the songs. I don't know if it was this song or it's the whole it record. Another, I think it was right the, the whole record, but I I just had to had to have one having used the soft synth version of it. Yeah. So uh It's quite hard to completely separate. It's impossible to completely separate drum mics when you're recording a drum kit. But what I, I really like doing and what we've got really mm. good at over the course of this record was actually having learned the drum part and having got some live recordings, actually going through and doing a full take of the song, but on every single separate live drum instrument. So you sit there with a kick drum and you'd remember exactly what came where because we'd just done 10 takes of the full thing live. But... You have to like imagine your hands playing everything else. The only thing that's being recorded is your kick drum foot. So here's live kick. There we go. Wicked. Banging. <laughs> so all those little hits you're playing. Yeah, and I, th I think Mark sort of cut them out and... Um... Yeah, we did a bit of editing afterwards, but often, you know, you can kind of... Well, if you hear... Listen here, you can hear the snare slowly opening up. Yeah. All those kind of subtleties, you know, they make... Yeah, they make a difference. Yeah. I think we tried to record as much from the four outputs. As okay, we tried to but... do it live and then did some overdubs of... Yeah. The... I think if you only reference one artist and one piece of music for the track that you're doing, then your song will probably sound like a pale imitation of the one thing that you're taking inspiration from. But if you've got several sources, then the, the it becomes a melting pot of all the different ideas that you've got and that way becomes something original and, and um, something unique, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, even... I'm jumping ahead to the vocals again, yeah. but... <laughs> I'm obsessed. I, yeah, no, I'm obsessed with my voice. <laughs> like the delay settings, I remember we were... Yeah. The, the kind of echo delay settings, we were like, oh, this has got a kind of Rick Astley never going to give you up. And then we were listening yeah. to that track and we yeah. were just... When you actually listen to how the delay is ridden on that track, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's on the fly, isn't it? So it's they on the fly, yeah. There's, there's, if you really break that track down and you listen to it in a way that normal people and and i never listened to it before ever uh and you kind of just start to analyze what's going on in the mix of it you realize there's some quite clever little things that you you would never realize before and i think we'd we probably watched the same top of the pops too the night before or something and heard it and and there's some little delay rides which really accentuate certain notes that you don't you just take for granted no you know it's such a well-known song but when you actually sit there and analyze it you go wow there's something quite clever that's just going on there that makes that lyric pop out to you um and we just came up with the idea of throwing a bit of that in i mean again nobody's going to listen to any of the friendly fire songs <laughs> it's such a rick astley <laughs> vibe on that 
fascinating to hear the detail that these people listen to things. Amazing. Who would know that Rick Astley had a, a, an influence on the work of Friendly Fires? So that was Ed and Jack from Friendly Fires with producer Mark Ralph. And now we're going to continue again in Iguana Studio for episode 36, joined this time by brothers George and Jack Barnett of These New Puritans to talk about their latest album, Inside the Rose. George starts us off with a dream. So, so this song um, started as a dream. I went through a period of dreaming um, music. Yeah, I sort of trained myself to wake up in the night and record the musical ideas. In the dream, I was walking along with an old friend of mine, Rory, and we were walking along in along the marshes in Southend, in Leontie, in fact, and we saw over the other side of the river burning. We could see that the trees, something was on fire, and then Rory said to me, look over there, there's trees are on fire. And then in the dream, the music just started up like it was a musical. And so this is what I sang. And all of those lyrics are in the song. Yeah. Maybe unchanged the melody. So all the melody and the lyric came from the dream. Yeah, well, I've lost the knack of it now. Now I don't wake up. I sometimes Second even dream sleep. that I've woken up and recorded it. It's almost like my brain is tricking me. No, you need to sleep. You shouldn't be working on right. music now. Like interjecting. So there's contrast. Yeah. Uh, between so the, the, the title of the demo is... It's pretty accurate, isn't it? Yeah. This is another one that I had on my phone and I was just driving around in a Aphex Twin window liquor style car, like a white Mercedes, driving around LA really fast with the volume like cranked up to complete maximum, trying to scare people witless with the uh, roof down, you know, when the <laughs> subs come in. We tried things like that. What are those metal bits? There's a few things. There's metal rods. And so it's also on the snare is like an aluminium sheet. Right. And we made all that stuff, you know, metal cutters and nice sort of metal drumsticks, which I'm still playing with live. They're like a rod of steel with my own sort of handles. Right, wow. Gaffer-taped handles, basically. Yeah. And in terms of your musical educations... Um, Zero. Zero completely for both of you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I learned the guitar. I think there's a fetishization of studio gear. Maybe this is the wrong podcast to say this in, but where it's like, uh, okay, this could be the big difference between something sounding good and bad. But ultimately, the main thing is the performance, the room it's in to some extent. But even with a close mic vocal, that's not going to make that much difference. And then way, way back behind that is like microphone. And then beyond that, like far in the distance is like compressors and all this kind of stuff, which are just, to me, is not going to make or break the sound of it. Mm. But they are still relevant in the sense that you, you love your Fender Rhodes. You know, you, oh, yeah. you, you want to oh, use 100%. that. But yeah, I guess yeah. you've also got to, if you're making an album, you've got to kind of prioritise one thing over another. If mm. you're thinking about everything all the time, then you're not going to end up with, you know, it's going to be a mess. Yeah. And so that string part is taken from one of those very first demos that we put together, just that harmony going against the, the other harmonies. And that's a standard bass guitar, well, a standard, but a particular... Yeah. What bass guitar do you favour, or do you have a few? Uh, the bass we've used and have always used is one that our older brother found in a local paper Luke. in Basildon for 20 quid, and it was covered in, how like, wall paint, black wall paint. 
and he chipped it away and underneath it was this beautiful Epiphone bass from the 70s. So we've always used that ever since. It's a very distinctive sound it has yeah. as well. So then, so there's these parts, then piano, quartals, drums, drums, friends. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labeling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers, and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organize set lists, and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favorite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favor. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. This episode is supported by Museversal, an amazing new service for working with session musicians remotely. If you use session musicians or would like to, but it's been too expensive or hard to organise, this is for you. And we have a special offer for any Tape Notes listeners, 25% off for the first three months, and you get to skip the waitlist. But more on that in a moment. I've got David from Museversal here to tell us all about it. Hello, David. What is Museversal? Hey, John, thank you so much for having us on here. Appreciate it a ton. Museversal is an online remote recording studio for artists, producers, composers, anyone who's a music creator to work with session musicians remotely. In a couple of clicks, you can go on and you can book a session with a drummer or a guitar player, a piano player, you name it, they're on the platform. And so the way that it works is all of the sessions are hosted over live stream. So all of the, you know, revisions and feedback and all of the different little, you know, hey, um, would you mind, you know, moving to the ride symbol for the fourth bar? Or would you mind, you know, finger plucking instead of using a pick? You know, all of those types of creative choices can happen quite literally as if the musician is in the room just done over live stream. Yeah. It sounds amazing. And in a way, the clue is in the name, Museversal. It means that whether you're a beginner or whether you're somebody with a lot of experience, you can still get access to the same kind of level of musicianship and creativity. Yeah, it's amazing because it allows the music to have expression on it and musicianship that, you know, if I'm sitting in my basement playing piano versus 
a piano player that's played for, you know, Jay-Z or has been playing for 25 plus years, the material that comes out of that is going to sound night and day. What does it cost? So the service is $200 a month US and included in that is all of the sessions. So there's no additional fees or anything. You know, you get to book as many sessions as you can have per month. To put it in perspective, the average user probably books about five to seven sessions per month. But we actually have some users booking 10, 12, 15 sessions per month. So, I mean, you can do the math on 200. The The deal really is awesome. And it, it allows people to work with incredible musicians and, and, you know, not break the bank. It sounds great. Can you remind us what the offer is for Take Notes listeners? Well, look, we're so thankful um, that you guys are having us on here. What we would love to do is offer 25% off per month for their first three months. And then the other cool part is they get to skip our wait list. So, you know, we usually run a wait list. It's about two weeks long. But in this case, you know, finding us through this episode, you could have a session as early as tomorrow. Fantastic. And to get the offer, all you have to do is find the link in any of our recent episode show notes. David, thank you so much for speaking to us. And maybe one day we'll be talking about a piece of music that's been created using Musiversal. That would be incredible. We cannot wait for that day. Absolutely beautiful. And I can't recommend the album enough. Inside the Rose, it really is an incredible journey to go on. And the episode that we had with them was fascinating. Next up, elbow frontman Guy Garvey, who popped down the road from his Brixton studio to join us at Iguana, whilst fellow band member and producer of the record, Craig Potter, dialed in from his studio in Manchester to share stories from the making of giants of all sizes. There's wisdom from Guy, beautiful early demo lyrics to Onda Onda Road that never made the cut, but we start with Guy on guitar. What makes it sound backwards? on those parts when it stabs is I've got an octave on it so I'm only playing the high note the low tone you can hear is being processed and because it does it slightly late it gives it the backwards effect and then there's two delays one in each ear it sounds great. I mean, it's interesting because you've kind of played up the idea that you are inept and can't play. But <laughs> when I listen to that on its own, I think that sounds like somebody who knows what they're doing. Thanks, John. And if I were watching that at a gig, I'd be thinking, ah, oh, he's really good, that bloke. <laughs> <laughs> he really knows what he's doing. I remember one song which, uh, around the time we were making Leaders of the Free World, I think that was the first time that Craig was taking the helm as producer. And we worked on this song endlessly. We were working day and night at that point. And we finished it and we were celebrating and we played it really loud. And then we put a couple of the tunes that we already had for the record on and listened to it again. And we got about four bars in before we all went, turn it off. And we've never heard it since. It was so bad, but we'd worked so hard on it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we all hated it instantly. It's, in yeah, comparison it's easy to, to convince song. yourself in, in the buzz of the moment, isn't it? That yeah. It's like you'd be very carefully respraying tea cut in your car, polishing it to a high shine. You step back and it's lime green. <laughs> Was that a terrible analogy? I don't know. Some people might like lime green. You know, that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> they might think, yes, <laughs> I am the business. I'm no Slowly rolling in a tube 
show dancing and ping pong paddle pie. You'll tease and set to giant nets as an ancient patient pays. So it went on like that. Yeah. It goes on like that. And I, I really nailed the imagery. I, mm. I was really happy yeah, with lovely. how well I explained it. But ultimately, it said, I've been to India. <laughs> so I fucked it off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so not only is East Lanks Railway uh, ditched, uh, but Udaipur is ditched as well. Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to hear about my holiday? <laughs> Nobody. It is a shame because you do paint that picture really well. Um, there was more guitars added to that, like a little pig nose thing, which is um, a guitar with a speaker in it. Uh, little fuzzy fly sounding. Does that make it? Yep, that's in there. Those There's big nose guitars, I, I made a habit of giving those out to friends, didn't I, on the road, before I realised how much they cost. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Martin got one, Jim from Grandaddy got one, and somebody said, we stopped giving them away, like 200 quid. I was like, what? <laughs> I thought they were like 20 yeah. quid. We've used so this them a lot, just, though, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, a lot. So this is just a loop round. You know, if you're not enjoying this, there's something seriously wrong. This is rock and roll. This is not chartered accountancy. You're supposed to be carrying a torch and it's about freedom and fun and expression and you know of course it's magic and and of, and of course the end result should reflect a lot of work but that work is made of bits of toast and string and something you saw through a bus window you can't over dramatize the writing process you've just got to start there's no such thing as writer's block it's a complete, you know, if you believe in it, then yes, you can make it exist. But it's like, if if you sit down and you write something terrible, if you didn't write it then, it'd still be waiting in the pipe the next time you sat down. So even your shit work is really positive forward motion. You know, think of it as plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> There's my advice. And talking of plumbing... <laughs> Such words of wisdom from the one and only Guy Garvey. Next up, a very inspiring episode with the London jazz force that are Ezra Collective. We were joined by TJ, Femi and James to talk about their incredible debut album, You Can't Steal My Joy. There's a clear message that you don't need any expensive gear to put down the basis of a great tune. And TJ starts us off with the story behind the song that led to the concept behind the album. The album concept was You Can't Steal My Joy. I was really exploring the concept of what joy looks like. And I was thinking back to the times I was, I was happiest. A particular moment that stands out for me is one of my most joyful experiences was watching um, BBK at Bestival. And I just remember seeing a few of the BBK members behind at the back. Um, I saw like light flashed and I saw, oh, that's Skip there. <laughs> light flashed again, I saw that's Jamie. And I'm thinking, mm. oh my gosh, like, it's about to kick off. And Skepta just jumped out from the back and started shouting, I'm doing it again, they tried to stop me, but I'm doing it again. They it up and he looked so vexed as he was rapping, but he came out, it wasn't even their set yet. The vibes were too correct and it erupted and everyone starts getting mad. <laughs> See where this is going now. And then when they come back out, I think Jamie ran out first. 
he started rapping. I can't remember what verse he started rapping. And then Skepta comes out. Serious, serious. Was it serious? Yeah. He come out and started rapping for serious. Then Skepta comes out again. And before you know it, a mouse pit had erupted. But everyone was on the same energy. And they started rapping their old school bars. Everyone's rapping, rapping. Like my boy, remember, told me he dislocated his shoulder. Like it wasn't a good moment. <laughs> but he dislocated his shoulder. Some oh, girl sorry. popped it back in for him. He continued the shoes. Yeah, it was mental. Like, it was after that when I was like, that was one of the most joyful moments of my whole life. But from the outside, looking in, like if my mom saw that, <laughs> she would have been thinking, what is wrong with these people? Why yeah. are they all so mad? Why are they all fighting? So when it comes to why are you mad? I wrote that song very much from a kind of, from the outside, it can look mad and manic and mental and whatever, but really and truly, you don't know what joy looks like until you know the inside of someone and what the heart behind it is. So what I have here is me getting a song in my head, but then I try and beatbox, sing and hum everyone's parts so I can remember what I want everyone to do. I need to give this context because it sounds awful. It's out of tune. I'm half panting because I'm walking fast. So what you're going to hear is me singing the drum beat so I can hear it. And then I sing a bit of the bass line and then I go back into the horn line, sing the melody. And I'm trying to put the arrangement and the composition all in one. Now, what's special about having a band of people that you've grown up with and love is they understand these voice notes now. But yeah, I just had to defend it, so it doesn't sound pretty at all. Wow. <laughs> I mean, how long is that? For ages, I thought I needed, like, you know, drum machines and you needed, like, this and that and that and that. It's such a myth, isn't it? You know, like, you just need to get on with it and sort of sit down and you use yeah. what you have. And I got garage bands, so I was just, like, you know, on the bus, just sort of messing about. So, I mean, what what can we hear then? What are you going to oh, share yeah, okay. with James? Um, so what, do you want to hear like the, the melody that I wrote before I did it on the saxophone? Yeah. Okay. Honestly, thank you for today because just going back through my voice memos, I found five tunes that I'd forgotten about. <laughs> I like, can't even lie. Like, even then, I started to have. I've got, I, when I heard "You Can't Steal My Joy," I just started getting way more confidence in those the yeah. other voice memos I have because I listen back to them and I'm like, this just sounds like trash. And then I listen to the "You Can't Steal My Joy" one. Like, this sounds like trash, but became a song. So this has been good for there's us. There's a couple albums here. Yeah, like, we, like, yeah. Thank you, man. Like, <laughs> it's it's one of the great too. things about doing techno is that when we've heard... Um... Nathaniel Facey, who was one of the tutors that I had at Tomorrow's Warriors, he was the person that put the thought into my head that records are just a documentation of time. And that really, really, really helped me because it took the pressure away from... I started to look at albums more like a diary entry 
as opposed to a seminal piece of work that presents itself as a novel, which can add so much pressure on that, that I would give that advice to anyone and I'll give it away to everyone. Love and learn to appreciate and enjoy where you are at this very moment because it's something to document. If you're sad, document that. If you're happy, document that. But just when you document things, be honest about the process. If you're broke, make a broke album. If you've got loads of money, I want to hear it sounding mixed and mastered well. Incredible insights from Femi of Ezra Collective, and we can't overstate the importance of tomorrow's warriors on the British jazz scene. For our next highlight, we travel to the Brain Yard in East London to join lead singer and writer of Mystery Jets, Blaine Harrison, and producer Matt Twaits in their bunker studio. We hear about the lengths they'll go to to create a more inspiring click track for drummer Caps, how to use your baby's heartbeat as a sample, and finally ending the album with a quack. But first, Blaine tells us about finding Narnia. In the past, particularly making Curve, I'd always found that I needed to get as far away as possible from London commitments and London life. So isolating myself had always proven to be really effective to just get on with writing and I'd, and I'd come back with a bunch of songs. So for this record, I thought I'd done a beach hut by the sea. I'd spent some time on a, on a boat moored on a really remote part of the Thames. I thought, how do I how can I get even further? So I thought, why don't I go to Iceland? Didn't you also have a spa with Bjork? That is a true story. <laughs> that did happen. So on New, it was New Year's Day. It's kind of customary tradition that everyone goes to these hot springs. So we went to one of the smaller ones in Reykjavik, but it was pitch dark and it started raining. I think I was just feeling a little bit lost in that moment. And I turned to my right and there was Bjork just lying in the bubbles next to me, just having a really lovely time. And I, I didn't disturb her, I didn't say anything, but it felt a bit like going to, you know, going to like Narnia and meeting Aslan, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is literally that. Yeah. I would imagine that as a drum, it can get so tedious just hearing beep, bop, bop, bop. Beep. Oh yeah, so it was to replace the click. So it was a click. It was right. essentially, it was, a it, was click. A, it was a kind of really demonic click and track because it's you know parts of it are aggressive we wanted to sort of create that environment but we didn't leave it in the track because right okay but we can hear the marching that in, in, helped inspire yeah, we, caps we, well yeah. he would have to tell you whether it inspired him <laughs> so, so you were kind of chanting as we're well chanting and <laughs> There, if there out. is feet stomping, they're really small feet. They're really tiny little <laughs> centipede feet. <laughs> wow, this is amazing. So you did all this. Yeah. Then he drummed along to that. Exactly, yeah. And then you took that original we caveman that out, yeah. marching well, thing out of it completely. Sounds like an out-of-breath dog. It? <laughs> I remember it being a lot scarier than that. So let's hear what Caps came up with then to the sound of that. He came to the studio one day and he had a recording from the, from the heart rate monitor taken through... Uh, the belly and I think we we kind of <laughs> joked that we'd have a competition to see who could be the first Just person to, to use it in a track yeah. right <laughs> um it's the classic the musician who has a kid like all their noises turn up I've got like three tracks with hiccups in somewhere <laughs> on my hard drive and like gurgles like oh yeah make a track out of it but yeah we did actually put it in this track but we recorded it in and I think it just Obviously, given the title yeah. of the song, it just felt so appropriate to so have. So Aubrey's heartbeat from the womb. For, yeah, is in, in utero, yeah. 
sure there'll be some um, mothers listening that recognise that sound. Yeah, that's um, really interesting hearing that. Also completely out of context, because normally if you are privileged enough to hear that, you're in a hospital and you've got a certain level of expectation and... Terror. Uh, terror. <laughs> <laughs> we added in... Yeah, a Moog like arpeggiator underneath it, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to hear that now. <laughs> the, the quack. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So yeah, I'll just quickly show you what it is. I think it's just the end of the chorus, I think. I just took Bang. that. So it's the last word of the chorus. Yeah. Bang. There's a low one and then a, an octave up as well then put a load of delay <laughs> delay and verb well it's just there just tucked in and it's the last sound you hear and in it is the, the last well. sound you hear on the record so it's, right. <laughs> on the record so it's, it's the final reveal The final reveal. I love that phrase. I love the fact that they think about the drama of the records that they're making. Matt and Blaine talking about A Billion Heartbeats by Mystery Jets. And for our final episode of this season of Tape Notes, we had Josh Davis, better known as the legendary DJ Shadow, who he caught up with at Wendy House Studios in West London whilst he was over on his recent UK tour. You'll hear about the exceptional attention to detail that goes into working on the samples he uses and so much more. Not least that even the mighty make mistakes. There was something about the guitar, the kind of just this note playing over and over and shall I play it? Yeah. Anytime I work with samples, and especially if I'm basing a track off a sample, as I have in this case, to me, I always want other producers to listen to the original and go, wow, how did he do that out of that? The top of the descending riff is bare, but a lot of the other pieces had to be pieced together and filtered, and it can often take two or three days to really get a sample to do and be what you want it to be. I had to retune it slightly because on the record, it's actually, there's kind of a lateral in and out not a warp, but just the way it was pressed made the fidelity kind of rise and fall. And if I hadn't have gone in and taken each little bling, 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 and tune it slightly, it makes you a bit seasick, you know what I mean? You've got all those different elements in that guitar break. How did you weld them together so seamlessly? Let's see. I mean, I actually use Pro Tools to clean samples because I just like how granular you can get and I can go in and notch. And it's almost like animation. It can take like half an hour to do a second of audio because that's the demand I have on the, on the sample to be as clear as I want it to be. And then my arrangement, my merging of all the different elements happens in Ableton Live now. To me, I felt a bit lost after the MPC era. I put the MPC away around 2002. And for about eight years, I felt a bit adrift production-wise. I went from this to that. Eh, still doesn't feel natural. And then I got on Ableton Live, and I felt like it's the perfect combination of endless possibilities and convenient and helpful parameters. And it speaks to my mind. It speaks to the way my brain works. My dad had reached out and said, a friend of his has some records. He's like 
approaching 70 and he just wants to unload them. And I was kind of calculating in my mind and I went, okay, that's a two hour drive there, a two hour drive back. Why am I doing this? I already have X amount of records. I don't need to do this. I got there, picked up the records. It was basically kind of what I thought it would be. It was just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And so I dutifully was going through everything and I picked up the record and I just sort of stared at it a while and it, it dawned on me that I would never have brought this record in my house, ever. I have very diverse musical taste. There's almost nothing I would censor or just say no. But revivalist acapella doo-wop from the 70s was just not something, I mean, that's just, that didn't interest me. I was just staring at it and I put the record on and just let it play. And I heard this sample and it just spoke to me instantly in the same way that the sample from Nobody Speak did, where I just kind of went, A, I don't think anybody would ever use this, and B, I think I can really do something with it. So here's the vocal sample again. I think this is about halfway in the middle of the song. Bring the drums in. And I don't remember at one point I added the bass line, but that comes in. And it's kind of a deep sub. Let's get the horns going in here. There were some background vocals that Daylaw added. Of course, the scratching. Funny and or tragic note about the scratch solo there. I somehow managed to release the record without realizing that that scratch solo was mixed out of phase. And I didn't realize it until it was played on Six Music on the BBC. We have our Sonos system set up to wake up to Six Music in the morning. But our speaker is just, it's one stereo sum speaker. So if something's out of phase, that sound will disappear. And the scratch solo kept coming in and I'd kind of sit there in the kitchen going, what's happening? What's wrong? And I kicked it over to Count, my engineer, and he goes, oh, how did that happen? I was like, I don't know but it's bad. <laughs> we need to fix it. So we ended up swapping it out on the DSPs a couple of months after it was out because I was like, I can't have that floating around the internet forever. Yeah. If you own vinyl and CD, yeah, it's probably out of phase, but it just goes to show you, you it doesn't matter what a big shot you think you are. <laughs> you're you're going to make very major errors if you didn't go to engineering school. Stay alert. It's the key lesson there from DJ Shadow. Everyone can make a mistake. Thank you very much for listening to this best of episode of Tape Notes. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, if you want to find out anything more about us and what we're up to, just head over to our socials or the website tapenotes.co.uk for all the latest info and pictures behind the scenes. We'll leave you with one last thought from DJ Shadow about the importance of knowing when you need to go the extra mile. And I don't apply this same level of... Uh 
obsessiveness to every song, but I think when songs have a possibility to be something more than what my own fans expect, or you know, in this case, what Run the Jewels' fans expect, then I think I have an obligation to the song and to the sweat equity that we all put into it. I want it to reach as many people as possible. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, we should hear the master, maybe at the point where we have a bit of vocal and then go into the horns and then... Yeah, let's just play it from here. Keep running, start popping your bunions, I'm coming, I'm the dumbest. Who flame throw your fuck shit to bunions. Flame your crew quicker than Trump fucks his youngest. Now face the flame fuckers, your fame and fate's going. I love Charlie Brown, Peppermint, Patty, Linus and Lucy. Put dope in the doobie, roll woolies to smoke with Snoopy. I still remain that Fuck out of here. 